to think about uh, the wonder of life beyond the daily duties we have to fulfill. And yes, that is very important, that we should not forget that we are a big chain of luck from the whole evolution, that all our ancestors have not died before they reproduced. One of my agendas is to bring that always to, to the conscious, because when we think what we lack, it's also important that we always think what we have. For the best part of 30 years, Swiss artist Pipilotti Rist has been beguiling audiences with her intoxicatingly verdant, psychedelic film work. Since the beginning, she's pushed the boundaries of her medium, co-opting her camera as a paintbrush, cage or limb, and pushing the borders of the frame of the picture itself. Her bold, resonant and frequently funny work has won her fans beyond the art world, while her open dialogue with pop culture, beginning with her name, itself a reference to the children's character Pippi Longstocking, has looped back in on itself. In 2016, Beyoncé's video to her single Hold Up paid loving homage to the artist. I'm Augusta Machelari, and with a major retrospective of her work open now at Copenhagen's Louisiana Museum of Modern Art, I sat down with Pippi Lottie Rist for the big interview. Pippilotti Rist, welcome to The Big Interview, and thank you very much for joining us. Hello, Augustine. <laughs> it's lovely to see you, and we've just had a look around your show at the Louisiana, and it's really incredible. It's this immersive wonderland of different things, this house, wow. it feels like. That's really super of you to say. And it was An lovely. energy boost. I wanted to ask first a bit about your background. I've read you say that you're quite suspicious of artists with self-made histories, but I wondered what your story is for how you arrived as an artist, how you found your way into the video art that you've become famous for. In general, I'm suspicious about the biographical informations because we have the tendency, our brain, to put all that happened in a logical row. But there were so many coincidences but we like to have a narrative. I started to do stages for music bands. In that time was a Slides and Super 8. I didn't consider me long time as an artist. I wanted to do, do a service where people feel flashed, but also have the possibility to reflect, but feel good together, that they also take the other visitor, visitor as a part of the room. So in a way, I do still the same. I do stages and then the visitors are the center. What was it about video as a tool for communication that, that you thought this is how you want to engage with people, how to create these kind of shared moments of consciousness? Video gave me the power to manipulate in color speeds and really work with the thing as with Super 8. I had to send it to the laboratory or I was dependent on others. So it made me more creative and fitter and freer. And in that time, video was very much linked with TV. In a way, we had monopoles who send it information out. And it was not yet as democratic where everyone can edit a video, which I really like. And, but then it was the senders, and I wanted to cook electronic meals rather from the position of the 
mess or from the position of the viewer. Yeah, you talk about uh, the television as this kind of, that, that was the frame of reference for video yeah. at the time that you started working. It's very constrained. And as we see in the exhibition here, you know, there's a lot of assaults on the limits of the TV screen. And some of them are very humorous. You're trying to squeeze your way out of the box. And in others, you're smashing car windows, which can be read as analogies, maybe for smashing open this box. Where did you find that you started becoming frustrated first with the TV as this limit with the rectangular projection and think that you wanted to break outside the borders of it? The square is quite a restricting norm and we do it that we can change the content quicker, but there's no other reason. And I always felt we obey too quickly to give norms. And also it's such a important thing, the screen in our life in the last 50 years, that I wanted to break out of this suspicious form. And with projection, it was possible. And to use it as pure light, as a wonder lamp, to make the viewer also conscious that while she's looking at the screen, she's also always looking at glass or plastic and to make such uh, conscious flashes that you come into the movement, but also back where you are, in a way, a Buddhist moment. When you talk about norms and, and limits, a lot of your work seems to speak to a kind of freedom and to people trying to push the boundaries of how they can behave. You know, there's a lovely projection that we just saw where a lady walks through a supermarket and in the middle of her forehead, there's another film playing where she's kind of maybe almost dreaming people running naked through a forest. Have you always had this desire for a kind of freedom? Have you always found yourself frustrated by the limits of things? Or is that something that you started to think about as you got more involved in your art practice? Probably it started early as a child when I saw that the boys have much more possibilities and then I just copied them. I was a wild girl in that sense. I always thought about norms and of course we need norms to live together and also to in a way keep us on the same level otherwise people would develop TV screens which are impossible to use so there's also good sides of norms but we have no not enough time and not enough creativity to questions the norms especially now when all the religious norms uh, vanish what new rituals shall we propose and do of course there is always new invention every day i'm very positive when i see the young people but a museum also as a ritual is is also an offering what we could make as new norms. Is spirituality a big part of your life beyond that? What do you mean? What is spirituality for you? For me, spirituality is giving time to think about things that happen in oneself beyond the boundaries of physical everyday experience. Yeah, you said really nice. <laughs> yeah. To think about uh, the wonder of life beyond the daily duties we have to fulfill. 
And yes, that is very important, that we should not forget that we are a big chain of luck from the whole evolution, that all our ancestors have not died before they reproduced. One of my agendas is to bring that always to, to the conscious, because when we think what we lack, it's also important that we always think what we have, what a wonder that we sit now here together, that we are able to to speak, that our blood is boom, flashing through the veins and and how that complex biological life could evolve. I wanted to ask about how your work has always engaged very directly with contemporary technology, with the technology that you had available to you. One of the things that's changed is that projectors have become a consumer item. Yeah. You know, you have these wonderful little films that I think I saw even in 2011 at the Hayward Gallery. I tiny films, yeah, yeah, tiny films hidden in crevices and suddenly the film, it had a different currency. But that's rolled out across the board. We all have phones in our pockets, yeah, yeah, yeah. we can watch films wherever. How's it changed your relationship with your audience? In a technical dimension has changed a lot. As you say, uh, Selfless in the Path of Lava was a novelty, but today every phone could play a little purgatory. Maybe we could do that, put the phone on the floor and then place that. Your, and projector, as you said, uh, became cheaper, lighter, more ladylike. If people in their private rooms, after they've seen the exhibition, work with it at home, maybe project it upwards or use it to project on their bed or on anything. If I can trigger such uh, freer behaving with electronic, I, I would be very happy. Do you find that audiences are kind of more at home with the idea of coming into a gallery space and lying on the floor and watching a film projected across a strange bit of the wall as a consequence of having done it at home, do you think? Yeah, that would be ideal. But also it's, it's meaning that we want to welcome the visitor with the whole body, not only with the head and then standing straight and look only in horizontal. And here we quite exaggerated the notion of the home. But actually, I have also realized that white cubes today look like homes. That this parallel development from the Petersburger hanging with the fabric wallpapers over to the Corbusier healthy, clear, white. And now every Living room in the Western society at least looks like a museum. Still don't know exactly what different meaning it has. It has, of course, a reflecting of the daylight. It looks hygienic. It looks everything in order, even if you have a total chaos inside. So it's also pretending cleanness, pretending concentration, pretending a lot of things. My home is not white. <laughs> <laughs> what color is your home? My home is uh, wooden boxes. You know, all the walls are either pellets or very raw concrete. Mm. And lots of plants? Yes, a lot of plants, a lot of colors in the textiles. You've kind of answered this in part 
when you've spoken about the constraints of the box and of the traditional square or rectangle that things are projected into. But I wanted to ask what, for you, art film or video art can do that television or that cinema, that kind of more popular visual culture can't do. What opportunities does it afford? I suppose it's about why you chose to make media that exists in a gallery, in a gallery that you've kind of described as a constrained space. You know, because there's already a comfortable public space to watch films in, and that's the cinema where you can eat popcorn and have a drink and sit in a comfortable chair. But in one direction. That's the big difference that you sit, everyone is forced to start in the same moment towards the ending. And in our exhibition now, it's the viewing direction is not as authoritarian than in a cinema. And you self become sometimes a, a screen. And both is, of course, jumping out of the ritual. Cinema is a very strong ritual which also gives a force when you watch together in the same moment. Sometimes there are emotions in the room which you would not have alone. We need each other extremely. And in general, of course, culture is the wish to jump out of your own skin, to feel understood and to make a proposition, to try to understand the other, to try to understand inner worlds of the other. Because I know that you went on the invitation of Paul McCarthy towards in the US for a bit. And I was thinking about that as a counterpoint to your work, because play is very important in both. And I know that there are some undercurrents and there are some strains of melancholy and sad that your work isn't all happy. But it seemed like Paul McCarthy's work really reflects a kind of the darkness of unchanneled desire and of the id and probes deeply into these 20th century psychoanalytical questions. And I wanted to ask, what's your relationship with him and his work like? I love his work, even if I have a complete different agenda, but I don't think it's contradictions. Also, other artists who point towards the lack of our times, pains, problems or cultural craziness it's very important but in my case I decided to rather use my force to make propositions but as you said the pain and the melancholy and the big black hole that we are ephemere and all the other philosophical problems we have to deal with they should be in the corners they should hang around but they are not in the center your work is so generous visually Musically, it also is. You've collaborated with Anders Guggesberg on a Wicked Game song. He's also worked on a lot of other pieces of music for your films. And one of these videos also has this song by Soap and Skin, Anya Plushk. How do you consume music? And when you listen to music, do you hear songs and do you think, I'm going to save that because that might find its way into a work? Or when you're making the work, do you think, this is the song? that I'd like to have? How do the two sides interact with one another? Consuming music has also changed with technology. The accessibility became completely different today. The Wicked Game song was for years in my brain, like in many others. So it's a collective consciousness. 
I was looking for a guitarist which is not too virtuose, so that it's not too slick. And I encountered Anders, he's a, an artist himself, sculptor and painter, and I asked him if he could play that, and I would put the microphone eight meters away to, to, to be able to do this embarrassing finale. And from then on, we started to collaborate. When I was younger, I always chose my boyfriends according to their music collection. Then the one who had the best music uh, feeling, I have a child with him. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that you've spoken about is individualism. And, you know, you present this space where people are invited to let go of their individualism for a moment and to think in the same way as other people. One of the brilliant installations downstairs is composed of strings of pixels which kind of show how individual atoms work collectively. We've mentioned the kind of atomization of society as a result of technology but how can you see technology serving to further that kind of collectivism and do you think that that's something that you know as social media companies like Facebook and their like become more disgraced do you think that that's something that maybe people will start to come back to? To have public moments. To have a sense of community mediated by technology instead of destroyed by it. I personally think we have not too little privacy. We have too much. And then also I don't think we are so different. But our brain is always functioning, seeing the differences between everyone. But what we have in common, even what a man and a woman has in common, the few body parts, they are different, is so little compared to the rest. And that's also for the whole society. And yes, museums and concerts and cultural spaces are places where we can move in in a community. And that is more and more important when we start to tear us back and have conversation with not immediate reaction when for example texting you don't learn then to hold the frustration whereas when we speak directly together you have to learn how do I deal now I feel offended how do do I loosen it up again or these are things I'm afraid that we have to not to lose Hmm. and in combination with that you know that this kind of this atomization comes a, I mean, this might be a bit of a, a leap, but comes this kind of additional imperative, which is to buy and which is to spend money on signifiers of individuality in the face of yeah. crowds. You're completely right. This exaggerated individuality is also a machine to sell more, to say uh, if you wear that or if you buy this, you're special. One of the things I feel that the ascendancy of advertising has done is kind of in some ways negatively impact on your practice. I mean, not hugely, but you've spoken in the past about the way that the associations people have when they see superficially your work, you know, vibrant colors, verdant, not landscapes, but parts of landscapes, moments of peace. The first place their mind goes isn't art. It's a kind of shampoo ad or something like that. And it, as they watch the films, the complexities and the, and the substance reveals itself very quickly. 
But I wondered whether you have any ideas about why the dice have fallen that way. Why is it that art, certainly in the second half of the 20th century, has rejected this kind of colour palette and has instead, in the same way, rejected the comfort of the domicile in the gallery space and instead gone for a hard, upright white space where austere work about serious subjects is laid Black down. lines, clear. It has, in my opinion, two reasons. One is a question of class, that there was the ones who had the knowledge, who had the information, the language, and color was more associated with proletariat, with gypsies, with exotism. And the other reason is also color is used much in advertisement because it draws attention. It's very emotional and you can fall into it. It has no borders, whereas black and white has always clear, rational borders. It's the fight between instinct and reason. Also, the clothing is also an interesting thing. Why people go now dressed as a teacher or as a priest 100 years ago, they say then, oh, I'm so deep inside, I don't need to draw attention to me because that's superficial. So it's quite a, a lot of new norms. And we cannot let the color just be used by advertisement. And beauty per se is not corrupt. That's also a mix from the higher class who said beauty always is corrupt. But we need beauty that our head can calm down. Actually, beauty is what we say. This has a meaning. This has a harmony. This has a reflection of my feelings. Mm. I was interested just now that you mentioned the tension between reason and intuition. And I... I'm curious to know how much, from a, I'm not the girl who misses much, to now, how much intuition has played a part in how you make films, how you've developed your way of using the camera as a paintbrush. How much of that has come out of just doing? It's both intuition and then a lot of try and error, a lot of research. That's also a good advantage of video that you can do a lot of garbage and you do it again and again and again. And I like to be involved in all the steps from the camera work to editing to till the final thing because I think it's all one. Or why I'm also so picky with the details in the show that the subconsciousness of the visitor feels more welcomed when the details are in order. It's like going to visit a friend, but you're allowed to see in every corner. This came up when we were doing a tour of the, the exhibition and it was suggested that the idea is to come into the gallery and feel like you're in someone else's house and see, see things without them being present. So see, see little signs that let you know whose house it is. So you know whose house it is, but without them being around to kind of host you. And it seems like the difference, as you say, is that when you go into someone else's house in everyday life and they're not there, I think everyone always feels a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit unsure about how to interact with the space and where to sit and they don't want to be peeping around. But here at the Louisiana, it's this amazingly welcoming place when I just flop and use it as you would use a house of your own. Yeah. 
And as T.D. Kohlsrup has told you, the founder Knut Jensen, he wanted to make a museum where you visit your slightly eccentric family. That's how it started and it grew and we tried to take his vision to the full excess. I mean, I'm interested in your relationship with this place. The Louisiana is the first museum that bought one of your works. So what does it feel like coming back to put on a huge show here? Very emotional place for me. They bought an installation in a moment where I didn't even know that you can collect a video installation. I was shocked. I was in several group exhibitions, so it was a slow narrowing. And now doing the show here for me also seems a bit like where else <laughs> like I can go then. But the place is not only in my relation special. If you ask people, if you speak with them about Louisiana Museum, did you also realize they, they react very emotional? But I have not completely found out why. Is it the location to, so close to the ocean that you are forced to go away from the city. It's open till 10 o'clock in the night. So people come up here, have a nice dinner in the restaurant, and they go to see an exhibition, flaneur. And when he did offer coffee in the beginning, the art world was shocked. Can you imagine 58 that they would say, oh no, art is not something in combination with your bodily needs. And that has changed a lot. Yeah, breaking down formality, opening it up. You said earlier it's a class thing. Do you think that the art world overall is moving in a positive direction away from the rarefied elitist atmosphere of an institution where you can't even have a coffee? into something that's inclusive, where people can visit until 10. Yeah, art world is developing in a direction I'm supporting. Anti-class, opening up, empowering people. But how can you empower people and not make them egoistic? So that is also a challenge then that comes from the other end. Mm. And that's also the task when you have a child. How can you give confidence to the child without telling her she is the center of the world? Which is, kind of feeds us back into the beginning where you talked about the need for some order for society yeah. to exist. Maybe it's compromise. Yeah, it's compromise, yeah. but it's a negotiation. Also, which art is valuable or it's also always a negotiation. It's only a group saying, oh, we think this painter was historically and artistically so important. It's always an agreement between people. Is your practice a space where you don't have to negotiate? Or do you find yourself still negotiating while you're making films? I have to negotiate with physical limitations. <laughs> and... Budgets. I try to make the most of the given money. Otherwise, I'm quite uh, free. The only thing is, often I think an exhibition should be without the name of an artist. That would be my utopie. But I still need my name to make as little compromises as possible. And 
show also depends on the curator. I like strong curators who have a strong opinion like Tine Kohlstrup. And it's, it's also nice to, how you say, say that, to uh, rub, up against, rub up against each other. I don't see that as a compromise, but as an improvement. And I always ask people around uh, about their opinion. Not that I do then what they say, but I don't believe in art doing only for yourself. Actually, art is then for the other. And our task is how will a person encounter it? And often you're too close, then you need other eyes or other opinions to give you feedback. Pippolotti-Rist, thank you so much for joining us. Augustine, thank you so much. My thanks to Pippolotti-Rist. Open My Glade is on until the 23rd of June at the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Copenhagen. The Big Interview was produced by Yelene Goffin, recorded by Sam Impey and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Augusta Machelari. Thank you very much for listening.